I've shared with a few people this week that the longer I've been a parent, the less I feel I have to say about parenting. The less confidence I feel in just conveying to you strategies, techniques, things to do, not do. And I think that's a good thing. So that as we sort of jump into this topic together of Christ-centered parenting, that the Word of God would be the real foundation piece for how we think about this and how we see ourselves as parents, how we see our children as our children, as we think about what the Lord has called us to be and do as parents. So Psalm 127, this song of ascents, this song of Solomon, where he says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And the house he has in mind here is a household. Here's Solomon who had hundreds and hundreds of concubines and wives who could produce dozens and dozens of heirs, who had more resources available to him, even in the training and teaching of children, and yet the Spirit inspires him to write, unless the Lord does it, unless the Lord builds it, those who build it labor in vain. And that's a really important principle for parenting as we think about it. It doesn't mean don't try. It doesn't mean give up. It doesn't mean what we do is meaningless. No, it, it matters. The Lord has called us to be and to do very specific things as parents. He's, and we'll get into some of that today. But yet just to realize that we plant others water, and then God causes growth. That unless he builds it, our labors are in vain. They're empty. They're missed. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You just have this picture of this city where you know, your loved ones, your friends, your family are dwelling within it, and enemy armies that at any time can attack. And there's watchmen standing on the ramparts looking out into the darkness if there's any sign of danger, any sign of enemies approaching. And yet here God is saying, if the Lord doesn't guard the city, might as well go to bed because there won't be hope for protecting it if God has given it up. And even just building into our children and protecting our children, those are two primary things that we do even as parents. We we instill into them, we build into them, and we worry about them, right? We want to protect them. And the older your kids get, and the less in control of their lives you feel, and the more they start to go out into the world and get driver's licenses and have friendships, and the more you begin to realize, okay, unless the Lord guards them, unless the Lord keeps them, unless the Lord watches over them, they're in trouble. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Yeah, so much of parenting feels that way. You're eating the bread of anxious toil. You're laboring, and the temptation so often is you have to worry, and, and for that to even compel a lot of what we do. He says it's vain even to do it. <clears throat> But then it's fascinating how, what he says next. You would think after saying that it's vain to rise up early, to go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, you'd think he'd say next, so don't bother. Just quit then. But instead what he follows it with is a promise. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Or I think the New American Standard translates it better. For he gives to his beloved even when he sleeps. In other words, while we sleep, he works. While we rest, God does things. He works in the hearts of our children. He works with the words that we have given them. That while we sleep, he doesn't. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. It's a gift. It's a kindness. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Just how in God's mind, children are a gift and a blessing 
And more is not worse. More is part of that gift. Especially, yeah, we, we live in a culture that does not believe that. You know, Time Magazine, I think it's been probably 10, 12 years ago, produced an edition where a lot of the articles in it were on the, is it, is it kind of just better to have a childless life? And the front cover of this, you can look it up, this Time Magazine had a, a man and a woman laying on a beach, sort of head to head and with sunglasses on and just the camera view is down at them just laying there, smiling. And the title of the issue is The Child-Free Life. And just the subtitles, what if the good life is not having kids? And just really pushes this idea that, yeah, that, man, just the freedom, you can just go travel, you can vacation, how much better life is if you don't have kids. You can tell they weren't reading Psalm 127 when they put it together. Because here the Lord says, no, blessed is that man, that woman, that family whose quiver is full of them. And in these weeks ahead, we're going to talk about all the different parts of that blessing, because part of the blessing is going to be in what you lose and what you sacrifice and what it takes and how much of yourself has to be put to death in the process. And that's part of the blessing. But also just seeing life to pour into, seeing God's grace in a thousand different ways, learning to have to depend on him in the work that we do. All those are part of the blessing and the gift. But just as much as anything, just to see generation after generation, and just God's goodness in procreation and being fruitful and multiplying, and how God-like that is. He is a creator. He is someone who wants to share of himself, to give of himself, to be oriented to others, because you know, what Time Magazine could have captured is just pre-creation, how easy God had it just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wouldn't it have just been easier just to exist for eternity in perfect happiness and bliss and love in the Trinity? And yet he decides to create, to create a world, to create people, to put them in a garden, and just a couple chapters into the Bible, they're going to rebel, and sin's going to enter, and the whole narrative of Scripture is going to start to unfold. And at great cost to the God who made it. But see, that's all part of the glory. That's all part of the beauty. That's all part of God displaying just his magnificent character on the stage of creation. So blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So in these early sort of sessions together, we're just going to lay some foundation pieces. And one of those foundation pieces is going to be Scripture and just the paradigm of parenting. How should we think about what parenting is and what parenting is meant to be about? How do we know like what to do and what it's for? Because parenting is God's idea, not our idea. And so we have to rely upon His Word to understand it, that parenting is not the product of social development or survival of the fittest, which is what some would argue, but it all came about within the plan of God and the providence of God, because he decided to create the world and everything in it. He decided to make mankind in his image, including a capacity to procreate, to produce and raise children. That's part of what he built into the creation. That both people and all the animals that he made can be fruitful and multiply. He's even going to command it in Genesis 1.28. Be, actually, turn there if you would. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And so bearing children was part of God's plan for them and for us. Now, it doesn't mean that every person that ever lives are going to bear children. Some may not marry 
and they will be given a different set of gifts from the Lord. Others will marry and not be able to procreate for reasons in God's own mind, and he'll give a different set of gifts. Some will bear children biologically, others through adoption. So many means. So it's not the standard and measure of if God loves you or not. But rather, in general, this is something that God calls Adam and Eve very early to, be fruitful and multiply. Then in, turn over to chapter 4, where we see now parents are going to emerge onto the landscape of Scripture, where it says in verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She realized even then that even though she and Adam were clearly involved, this was a kindness of God. This was a gift of the Lord. God helped them conceive and bear a son. Genesis 5 begins with the words, this is the book of the generations of Adam, followed by a list of all these generations that are going to come after Adam. Each generation leading to the next, each generation ending in death, just as the Lord promised would happen if they ate the fruit. And in many ways, Genesis 5 is a case study for be fruitful and multiply, and a case study for in the day you eat of it, you will die. Because those are the two things we're going to happen that we're going to see happening all through Genesis 5 is so-and-so is going to beget so-and-so, they're going to live this many years, and they're going to die. And so every person on earth will not marry and bear children. This is a relatively normative pattern for human life modeled for us in Scripture. By the grace of God, we marry and multiply. And there are many ways that we image God, many ways that we reflect His glory in the world. Just this is one of them through parenting and child rearing. So let's look at that first section there in your notes on why parenting exists. And it exists because God is the Father. That fatherhood and motherhood are means through which the Lord displays himself in the world. I mean, God exists eternally as the Father of God the Son. And God the Son is eternally Son of the Father. So here God is creating a world where his glory is on display. And so it makes sense that he would set it up in a way and create images that reflect that very glory. So you'll see that point one there. When the Lord created fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, and families, he's displaying something about his invisible nature, something about his glory. That all creation testifies to the existence and power of God. Romans 1 tells us that. All things exist through him and for him, Romans eleven thirty six. That every earthly father then is some flawed copy of God as the father. And that's why no matter what kind of father we had growing up, it in some ways helps tell the story of what, who God is and what he's like. That we could have an abusive, neglectful, awful father And they show us who the Father isn't. They show us the very opposite end, in a way, a kind of anti-God the Father. Others will have fathers who are caring of them and faithful to them and loving them and patient with them and in many ways expressing something about the fatherhood of God. But I would say almost all are a mixed bag. In some ways, when our kids look at us, they'll go, okay, that's like the Father. But then in a lot of things, they're going to go, okay, that's not like the Father. Which is why, as we'll talk about, so much of parenting is, hey, kids, watch me kind of. You know, listen to me insofar as it's reflecting God's Word well, insofar as I'm reflecting God faithfully. But at the end of the day, we're always pointing our kids to someone else. Every earthly son and daughter are flawed images of the true son. So this isn't special revelation, that's just general revelation. In many ways, that's part of what redemption is doing. In redemption, we're becoming children of God and being conformed to the image of the son. So that 
the way we relate to the Father is more and more expressive of way, the way Jesus the Son you know, re- relates to the Father. Secondly, God creating people is a fatherly act. In one way, God is Father by creation. Listen to Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, by whom every family on earth is named. In other words, there's a way in which by creating people, by creating all people in all the world, God is a kind of Father of all by creation. But then you look number three there, God redeeming his people represents, though, a selective fatherly act where he truly becomes the father by recreation, by adoption. But because of sin entering into the world, we're born into this world now not as children of God, as we'll look at in a minute, but as children of the devil. And yet God in redemption through Christ changes us from children of the devil to children of God. God identified himself as a father to Israel in Exodus 4.22. If you want to turn over to Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God saying to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So just that God would identify Israel, who he's about to redeem from Egypt, deliver from Egypt as, this is my firstborn son. So this is referring to Israel as a whole, who is going to deliver from Egypt, even though many of the individuals of Israel aren't going to come to repentance and faith and trust in Yahweh, who's redeeming them. Then number four, under the new covenant, God the Father adopts us through union with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so for an eternity to come, we will have one Father. Jesus says it in Matthew 23, 9, where he says, Call no one on earth your father, for you have one father who is in heaven. So when we all get there, all of our parents who are in Christ, our kids who are in Christ, relatives in Christ, will all be siblings. We'll call one our father forever. And that's God the Father. It's a remarkable thing. And it's remarkable to consider, too, that this father wants millions and millions of children. Think about how many moments do you have as a parent of one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, you're like, okay, someday they'll grow up and leave, and I'll get to sleep again. And I'll get to, there's just moments where you think this will be a lot easier if. And yet here, Christ is delayed in coming because the Father wants more children, more children. Millions of children. And that for eternity and glory, he will be the father of a host of children. What a statement about the character of God, about the love of God, the nature of God, of who he is. And now he creates parents and families and sons and all these on earth to reflect something about his character in the world, something about what he's like, something about what he loves. That's why when all the children are coming to Jesus, right, and doing what first century toddlers do, climb, drool, bring all their mud and dirt and all the things that they still do now. They're climbing on Jesus. They're getting on his lap. They're probably pulling his beard, poking his eyes. And what do the disciples do? What's their response? You had to stop them. I'd say, whoa, 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 get back, back. This is a rabbi. And what does Jesus say? No, let him come. For the kingdom belongs to such as these. Whereas these little kids give a picture of what sort of heaven will be like. Even 
If we're going to approach the Father, we're to approach him with faith like a child, which means we bring nothing, empty hands, relying entirely upon him to provide what is needed, completely emptied of our own self-sufficiency and ability. It's part of what he's getting at. The kingdom belongs to such as these, and even were to come with childlike faith. So all around us, God in our families, God puts all these little images and in his word, he sort of uses those images to teach us something about who he is, about who God is. Because at the end of the day, under the new covenant, yeah, God the Father adopts us through union with his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we come in. That's how we move from being children of the devil, 1 John 3.10, to children of God, 1 John 3.10. It's through believing in Jesus Christ. He's the one who, according to John 1.12, gives us the right to become children of God. So you see how that's just a theme that Scripture unpacks constantly. What it means is parents, as parents, we are guides to the Father. If you want sort of a prayer, a desire, a mission in life as a parent, it's to guide our children to the Father to introduce them to the Father. And we're going to use some of Exodus and Deuteronomy as sort of a, a framework for this idea. <clears throat> that as Christians, we live under the new covenant, not the old, and yet still the words that God's going to give to Moses in Exodus and in Deuteronomy are super helpful as we think about just parenting. And most importantly, the role of the Word of God and the Scripture as our paradigm for parenting. And hopefully see that at its very essence, parenting isn't super complicated. God's essentially just gonna say, hey, here's my word, read it. Here's my word and my promises, talk about it. Share it with your kids. So turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy 6. And we'll start in verse four and then we'll jump back to Exodus after that. Deuteronomy 6. Verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And I'd like to say that those three verses are the hardest part of parenting. It's me loving the Lord with all my heart. That'll always be the hardest part of parenting. Not the strategy, not the technique, not every way that I discipline or don't discipline, not how well I educate them in the world, not how many different sports I'm able to teach them. The hardest part will always be love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. And that's the biggest liability I bring to parenting, is that I don't. That's the biggest trouble I bring to the parenting task, is that I don't love the Lord as much as I should. And I'm still learning how to love him with all my heart. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And so he's not giving us just some external, empty, hollow framework of behaviors where we're just sort of legalistically throwing the Bible around and making sure we have enough plaques on the walls that have scripture on it and play worship songs all the time. No, this starts, we saw it in verse 4, 5, and 6, right? In our own hearts. This is a genuine love for God, love for the Lord that then overflows into talking about him and writing about him and speaking about him in him being on our lips, in his works being something that we notice and identify. 
So after delivering the people of Israel from Egypt through his great works, redeeming them through the blood of the Lamb, the Lord took them as a special possession, as a people for himself. And then he's going to say to Moses in Exodus 6, 7, he's going to say this, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So the Lord's revealing himself to Israel through Moses on Sinai. He's going to give them the law, teach them about the terms of their covenantal relationship. And the whole of that law is summed up in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So that by the time we get to, Genesis, or to Deuteronomy 6.5, he's just summarizing everything he's already said in Exodus. Everything he's already said in Leviticus. Everything he's already said in Numbers. All that law was summed up in, love me with all of your heart. And then teach your children about me. The first reason to help our children know the Lord. That God, through his inspired word, through Moses, to parents for teaching and training their children down a very specific road. And one of the things that defines that road is to help our children Know the Lord. The reason we as parents are meant to regularly speak of the Lord to our children was so that our children, by God's grace, can grow up and know the Lord personally, intimately. They were to know true things about God over and against all the false things about God, all the false things about the idols of the world. They were meant to know what God loved and what God hated. What was holy, what was profane, what he honored, what he dishonored, what he commanded, what he prohibited. And just uh, hundreds of other aspects of who he is and what he's like and what he does. So the constant refrain of the Exodus narrative is, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Turn back to Exodus, Exodus 6-7. God's about to redeem the people of Israel from Egypt. God's about to bring them out, 600,000 or so men, just as many women or more, and at least probably half a million or more children, probably close to seven or 800,000 children. He's bringing them out, and he says in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Turn over to Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 7, 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Now Exodus 8.22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Turn over to Exodus 10.2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14, 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14, 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Exodus 16, 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then Exodus 29, verse 46, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Hopefully we see the theme, how often he comes back to this, that 
you may know that I'm the Lord your God, that Egypt would know that I'm the Lord your God, that Pharaoh would know, that the whole world would know, but beginning with us. And so all that in the context of, so teach this to your children. Tell them about my works. Tell them how I dealt with Egypt and how I've dealt with you so that they would come to know that I'm the Lord. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. It's just a great parenting verse. One generation shall declare your works to the next, shall declare your mighty acts. We'll just talk about what God has done. So that's the first step in the process of helping children realize that he is the Lord is, I think, first by helping them realize that they don't know that he's the Lord, right? That's always usually where it starts. We're going to talk about who the Lord is because you don't know who the Lord is. It's just not how we come into the world. That's the context for Deuteronomy 6. And it also kind of helps us understand, I think, the miscarriage of parental instruction that is so evident in the book of Judges. Because what's one of the tragic verses that recurs in the verse of Judges? That in a generation arose that what? Didn't know the Lord, nor what he'd done for Israel. Just a generation arose. And it's the generation after Joshua and his generation die in Judges 2. The scripture reads, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the whole book of Judges unpacks what happens when that's the case. When generations arise that just don't, don't know him. So let's pause here just, yeah, for questions, for comments. What, yeah, thoughts or comments or questions do you have so far? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think certainly that was a big piece was, um, I mean, I, I think in many ways it started with, we were just surrounded by people who also love the Lord. And just there was a group of us as couples who just all started having kids around the same time. And so, yeah, we met, we talked, we prayed, we tried to encourage each other. And so there was a part of that that was just in the community of believers is so key. And there's some of you that have started having kids and yeah, evidently at the same time, because what are we going to have like 49 kids or something born this year? Or... And so in that there's a gift there of, okay, these, these are going to be, there's an older generation that can encourage you and help you, but also just peers that were, that are there raising kids at the same time that can encourage one another and remind one another. And yeah, and then daily, you said it, just striving to be in the Word, and just there'll be certain things that you just don't give up. And one of them, okay, just the same way I'm going to eat food for my physical body, we have to keep eating spiritual food for the soul to remind that. Um, certainly, yeah, in the struggle of parenting, I mean, in all of it, I think realizing need for God, I mean, I think that was always a big part. Yeah, yeah, I'll never forget the moment when Gabe was born, and then on that third day when it was time to take him home, they brought in, took the tag off, did all those things, and swaddled him, and then handed him to me. And the first thought that hit my mind is, what do you expect me to do with him? Like, it hit me in that moment, like, oh, wait, we take him home. And, you know, like, I don't know how it was, y'all, our first child, so we strap him in, and 
took like 40 minutes because we double, triple checked every strap, every part, every piece. We pulled over like three times on the way home from the hospital. Like, oh, do, do you still hear him breathing? Like, what? Is he okay? So you pull over, you look back there. And I tell you, like in the security of like car seats today compared to what they were when some of us were kids. Like, I think my kid, my parents just threw me in the back seat, like, and like the swallow garments just took me out and put me in the floorboard or something. But it, but things changed. And just feeling the weight of it physically. And then what the Word of God does is, I think, takes that physical feeling, that sense of responsibility, and then makes you see the spiritual is even greater. Just, okay, the spiritual responsibility. Like, you're concerned about his physical welfare? What about his soul? What about her soul? What it, and so in all those moments, whether it's feeding him food or drink or clothing him or like in all those images, there's like, but Lord, he needs bread of life, not just this food. Okay, Lord, he needs righteousness to cover him, not just this onesie we're putting him in. Okay, he needs, and just at every little detail of interacting, there's a reminder of need for God to do something. And so I think that's a mercy of God is keeping us, I think, desperate in it. But then there's just plenty of times, plenty of days, plenty of weeks where just I forget and just neglect the things of the Lord, neglect, and it showed. It showed in my frustration level as a dad. It showed in, I mean, there'd be times where if you were to ask my kids, okay, what has your dad most deeply and passionately taught you about? Is it the things of the Lord? I, I think they might say, well, I think cleaning my room actually is what he's most passionate about. On this... Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know where we read it or who gave it. I'm pretty sure my grandma is where it started. But, it, but those kinds of things, yeah, creep in. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Or I think it's the angle of my leg when I'm kicking a soccer ball. Or I think it's if... So there, there were just moments... Whereas we'll look to it in a little bit, where just I forgot the point. And if you were to ask them in those moments, what is life really about? What does God most want from you if you were to take just what your dad emphasizes? I think there would be moments they would have been quite confused. Which is what we'll get to next week with God being the hope of parenting. Um, because there's just going to be plenty of times where we have to look at our kids and say, you know, please forgive me. Like, I misled you here, or I misemphasized this, or I didn't do enough, you know, in this area. Remember, I had one friend who, when he left the house, his parents said to him, okay, when he was going to college, said, okay, it's our fault that you're this way. We get it. But it's your fault if you stay like this. <laughs> Which is a, just a comical way of saying, you know, we realize we need your forgiveness for some stuff. We weren't great at this, but you have enough, and God has given you enough that you can't blame us if you don't follow him, if you don't walk with him, if you don't. Um, to help our children trust the Lord, so to know the Lord, but then also to help our children trust the Lord. Yeah, Exodus 14, verse 10, if you want to turn there. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, think about that. After all they've seen, after all God has done, just don't trust him. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just a great scene on, okay, they sort of saw his works. They were starting to know who he was and what he was about, but they didn't trust him. 
Because the moment adversity comes, the moment trouble comes, the moment they're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, the impulse is, yeah, he's brought us here to die. And again, this starts for us as parents even, just what do we get anxious about? What do we get fearful about? If, the, if our kids were to sort of look to what's important based on what we're afraid of or fearful about, what would they deduce is most important? Is it just physical safety? Is it just not being poor? Is it just, I mean, fill in the blank. Or is fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Is trusting the Lord? And so I think just one parenting application um, is just sit down as a family and read the Exodus narrative. Just read it. If you've got kids like under the age of five or six, just pick maybe some key paragraphs or verses from each chapter that'll just help you work through the story with young kids. Or if you've got kids that are like six to 12, I think you can just read the whole thing. Just take a chapter or two a night or just a chapter a night and you'll get through the whole book in a month and a half. And you got years and years of parenting, so what's a month and a half? Sometimes we're like, oh man, if we go just a chapter, like it's going to take months to get through the book. And we just have to ask, what else are we going to do? Like, what, what else do we have in mind for the next 20 years? Apparently, there's time. Like, there's time just to read it. Or if, yeah, yeah, if you've got teenage kids and older, just have them read it as well. Have them explain and just share just to other members of the family what they think that particular chapter is about or what God is revealing about himself. Or, because in doing that, God's given us a gift. Like, okay, this, here's the story of my works. Here's the story of who I am, of how I redeem people, of how, and the implications are so many. And so just read it. I don't even think we have to get much more creative. I don't think we have to have a THM from a seminary and go into the Hebrew and to just the structure and all these sort of complicated aspects of teaching. I think it starts with just reading, hearing it. That's how even parents should have done it and would have done it. They just would have recounted the story. That's why you go to the book of Acts and just Stephen's sermon, and you just read Stephen's sermon. Here's Stephen preaching to all the religious leaders of Israel. What's he doing? He's just recounting their history. He's just telling the story. Here's who God is and what he's done, and he's going to get stoned, but he's going to say, and by the way, here's your part in that story. You're just in the long tradition of people who just stiffen your necks and harden your hearts and don't believe God, just like your father's. But all that was the result of just telling the story. But then thirdly, to help our children love the Lord. You can remember Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's going to be the context where he's going to say, and you shall teach your children. Yahweh tells us who to love and how much. I've often said it's probably one of the most offensive things the Bible says to sinners. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your strength. Do we live in an age that says you can't tell me who to love or who I can't love or how much? Instead of be able to say, actually, that's exactly what the Bible does. That's precisely what God does. He tells you exactly who to love and how much and exactly who not to. It's one of the things that's most offensive <laughs> about the gospel. Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So why doesn't everyone live forever? Because we don't do that. We don't love perfectly every second of every day for the entirety of our lives. And that's one of the things that we have to help our children see. That they don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. And the more your kids go from infant to toddler to speaking and moving, the more you realize how little they love God and everyone else. In every law you convey, 
every rule and instruction you give will simply be uh, the environment under which rebellion will happen. If you really want your kids to go put their hands in the, a plant in your house and pull the dirt out and put it on the floor, just tell them not to. And then that potted plant will take on a magnetic power, a striking magnetic power, just by telling them, yeah, don't do that. There's been moments like in our house where I remember with our kids, like there's something they know they're not allowed to touch or do or grab. And they'll be walking by, just going to something else, and they'll get within a few feet, and it's like a tractor beam. They'll just stop, and they'll look like it's glowing. And I'll be sitting on the couch, and because I've got a magazine in front of me, they don't think I'm looking at them. It's great how little kids don't understand what peripheral vision is in a parent. Because the whole time you got the magazine out, you're just looking, and you're watching, and then it's, and, then, and just you see the war, this battle happening. And part of that's not, to, again, to shame, but to help them see there's, that's what will kill you. There's the problem. That heart that is at its core rebellious, that doesn't love God, and therefore every rule that he enacts just feels like a prison cell, not a means to love God, not a means to honor him. So some of teaching our children to love the Lord is helping them see they don't love the Lord and that they need a new heart to love the Lord. They need to be born again. They need the Spirit of God because the fruit of the Spirit is love. They need what we all need. And fourthly, to help our children remember the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 through 12. Is right after everything we just read in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're going to be brought into this land where everything you receive is a gift, where it's all of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't build it. It's just given to you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord and think, you know what? I did this. I deserve this. This is mine. One reason we teach the Word of God, Deuteronomy 6, diligently to our children by talking of his word, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, is to do everything in our power to help our children remember the Lord, lest they forget the Lord, verse 12. So then at meals, like prayer isn't just a token, yeah, this is just a tradition we do, we just throw up a prayer to God and thanking him for the food. No, it's because we actually believe this is a gift. This is a kindness. These clothes are a mercy. This house is from him. The air we breathe is his. Our hearts that beat, beat because he allows them and sustains them. So again, he's filled the world with images that we're able to point out to our children. Look, that's from God. That's his kindness. That's his goodness. That's his generosity. Because is that something we come into the world with as kids? A little bit of entitlement? A little bit of a sense of I deserve this or I deserve better? Or the more years we have it, the more we think we forget that God gave it. We forget that God keeps giving it. We forget he could take it away and not wrong us one, milli- one bit in doing it. That he can give and he can take. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then to help our children serve the Lord, Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. 
Or Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, meaning all these idolatrous peoples around them, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God's saying, okay, you're to say all this to your children, show all this to your children, even if they're not believers. And not because we think, yeah, it's just an external change is what we're after. No, we realize, no, the heart has to be born again. The heart has to be regenerate. But yet God still says, no, teach these things. When we go out into the world, we're saying, okay, kids, be careful of that. Okay, you're, you're allowed to watch TV, but be careful here. Okay, you're allowed to use this technology, but be careful. Here are the dangers. Here are the pitfalls. You're allowed to enjoy these different gifts of God, but then here's where those become idols. Here's where the world turns that into a system of false worship. And that's so much of, again, the difficulty in the art form and the slow, hard work of parenting is we're living in this world and have to live in this world. We're teaching our children, okay, how to be in this world and going to school and being educated and getting jobs and playing sports and watching media and interacting with others. Yet in all that, we're saying, okay, here's what it means to follow Christ. Here's what it means to forsake him. Here's what it means to honor the Lord. Here's what it means to dishonor the Lord. It's not so much just the things themselves, but in those things are we serving the Lord or serving something else. Christ came into the world. The grace of God came into the world. Titus 2 verse 12, and he redeemed us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Hopefully you can see there the similar pattern of what God was doing with Israel in Exodus. He's redeemed a people for himself to be zealous for what he loves. And that's what we're praying for, for our kids, that even before our children come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can teach them what it means to serve the Lord, what it means to know the Lord, what it means to love the Lord, what it means to remember the Lord in everything. Yeah, let's pause there a minute. Any questions or comments or thoughts about what we've covered? All right, we'll get through this last bit here in the next few minutes. How are parents to know what to be and do. And this hopefully is self-explanatory. It's just everything we've talked about so far is just from Scripture, from the Word of God. We can actually read Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and see here's what God is calling His redeemed people to do with their children, to talk about, to teach. Because knowing God through Scripture helps us see our roles rightly what it means to be a father, what it means to be a mother, a parent. And so those types of words fill the pages of Scripture. And just imagine if you were to go and just find every passage that uses the word father or mother or children. I mean, it would take you some days to list them all. Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. So what does that imply when you hear that verse? What does it imply fathers and mothers do? They instruct and they teach. So just in a verse like that that's even given to children, like, okay, listen to the instruction. Well, it's also given to parents. Okay, this is one thing I'm supposed to be doing. 
And therefore, every parent is a teacher. Every parent is an instructor. It's just built into the job description. Knowing God through Scripture helps us know what to say about him. We just talked about it from Exodus, right? We can just read the narrative. And that helps us say true things about who God is. It helps us refute false things about who God isn't. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So one thing the Lord wants us to help our kids do is fear the Lord. Revere him. Honor him. See his bigness and his holiness. Knowing God through Scripture helps us see direction in leading our children. Yet Colossians 1, 21, Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, Established and firm, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So, what's the starting point with our children? He says it alienated from God, enemies of God in their minds, evil behavior. This is how they come into the world. It's not how the world wants to describe how we come into the world, but it's where we all start. Well, what's the journey? Verse 22, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Okay, so this is where they start. The journey is to Christ and through Christ. The whole prayer, the whole desire is that they would come to him, that they would turn from their sin and trust in him. They would see Christ and his work at the cross as their salvation they would put their hope in him and not their own righteousness. And so what it means is in all our mealtimes and all our schooling and education and all of our sports activities and moving around and all the activities and things that we're doing in this world, the real center of our desire and our prayer is that they would come to Christ, that they would walk with Christ, seeing then the destination, verse 22, to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Paul saw that as, okay, this is my desire for this church, for Colossians, for, well, how much more is that than our desire for our kids? And it doesn't mean the only thing you ever talk about all the time is Jesus or the gospel or, no, life is full of lots of things. But rather we see, okay, the point of all things is him. It's from him, it's through him, it's to him. The hope of all things is him. And it also doesn't mean that, okay, the, the more I talk about him and the more passionately I talk about him and the more Bible we read, well, then that'll guarantee our kids will come to Christ at a young age or whatever that might mean. It's still, as we'll talk about next week, it's still going to come down to his sovereign grace and mercy. But yet what it means is in our minds, okay, that's, the journey. This is the starting point for our kids. This is where we're praying that they'll go, who we're praying they'll walk with, and this is where we're wanting the destination to be. But then knowing God through Scripture helps us in how to lead our children. And a lot of the weeks ahead, we'll talk about this. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't just wear them out with rules and criticism and just hammering on them. But bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There'll be a lot of sessions in the weeks ahead that'll be on that very phrase. What does it mean to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? And just all the details of it. So a few practical suggestions just based on today's session. Yeah, learn to point out the existence and power of God that's displayed in creation. That's just one simple way. When you walk, when you drive, when you go about your way, just learn to point out where mountains come from, where trees come from, where these animals come from, 
where food comes from, where our bodies come from. And just there'll be yeah, lots of opportunities just to point out the God who is displayed in the creation, regularly drawing attention to the love and generosity of God in creating and sustaining people every day, that we wake up in the morning, we sit at the breakfast table, we go, hey, praise God, he sustained us in the night. David said that in Psalm 4, I awoke this morning for the Lord sustained me. What a great statement. He goes, hey, I woke up. I guess God took care of me. I guess the Lord sustained me in the night. I mean, it's that simple. When people prove themselves untrustworthy, including us, we can draw attention to the perfect, unfailing trustworthiness of God and everything that he does. Yeah, just we're going to disappoint our kids, and we shouldn't hide that. We're going to fall short, and we shouldn't hide that. Because ultimately, their hope, the reason for their obedience, the reason for them to trust the Lord isn't because of our trustworthiness. It's because of God's trustworthiness. So we're always sort of pointing that to him in that. Yeah, read Old Testament scripture that shows God in action, that tells the story of his works upon the stage of human history. Just read Genesis, read Exodus. Those are there just as a gift, depending, again, depending on the age of your child, how you might read it. Yeah, be careful with Bible story books. Some are great, some are terrible. And so, you know, Ryan Trogon will be a good contact point, or maybe just others even in the room, that some of you moms and dads actually homeschool small children or have looked at all the resources that are out there. And so, yeah, ask others in the church, what are good books you found? And I actually have a book list for parents and kids. Um, I don't know if it's on the back of the handout. There may be one for parents. There's another great book list for kids. And we'll probably have that on the sheet in future weeks, just books that are good to read with them or that they can read. Because all those are, okay, how do we tell the truths of God? How do we reflect God to kids in an age-appropriate way that they can know true things about him, that they can come hopefully to trust those true things about him, that they can, by God's grace, come to love those things about him and remember those things about him and then serve him? Yeah, questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on today or on these passages? Yeah, um, so yeah, I'll share a few things that won't be why they're godly um, in whatever that 90-minute period of time is. The, the, yeah, I, I mean, that'll be a mercy of God in and of itself and a grace of God. But yeah, so early on, um, we did you know, a lot of reading, talking, pointing out. Well, I mean, early on, when they're infants, you're just surviving and helping them survive and praying, and you yourself learning to trust the Lord and know the Lord and follow the Lord as a parent, as a father, as a mother. Um, early on, it helped to watch other parents. It helped to be in a church of other men and women who will, were striving and laboring to train and instruct their kids in the way they should go. And so, yeah, when kids are infants and toddlers, there's a lot of... Um, just personal growth that you're praying for the Lord to do in you, observation of other families as they're doing it, taking scripture to heart and what kids really need, and then as much as you're able, beginning to interact verbally um, with just the truths of scripture in a way that they can understand. And so we did, yeah, children's books and books for us. And, um, and then there's a lot of, of course, just physical redirection and discipline and facial interaction and eye contact. These are things that, yeah, we'll talk about even in later weeks, that um, a lot can be communicated through your eyes and through your face. And so just even with babies, like, do you love them? 
Do, are you asking God to help you love them well? Are you looking at them that conveys that love and affection for them? And so even just in early on with little kids, just the nonverbals um, that Ruth was especially gifted at and would help me because I tend to, I'm, I'm not going to think about those kind of details, but she really helped more think about, okay, even just how you interact physically with small children conveys a lot. And so there are ways in which we prayed, okay, Lord, help us convey just your affection, your love for them before they can even understand words. But then as they're growing and learning and words begin to happen, now that sort of changes how those interactions unfold. And so there would be times where just wherever we might be, whether it's out camping, whether it's out on a walk, whether it's at a store, shopping, whatever it might be, helping them connect the God who created the world in everything that he created, just making observations and pointing those things in a non-sort of controlling, anxious way. Because there's a way in which you can almost, in a legalistic or panicky, thinking that, okay, my intensity of this and how much I point this out is what's going to save them as much as, no, in a very natural, hopefully genuine way, you're pointing those things out. And then just the older the kids have gotten, the more involved we get in actual reading larger chunks of Scripture, talking about those things, having them, yeah, really impressing upon them the need for them to be in the Word every day, asking them what they're reading, asking them what they're learning, um, talking about things they're learning from sermons, from services, from youth time. Um, again, those are all generalities for now, but um, there's no magic bullet. Um, we had to pray for a lot of wisdom in it. But then I'm always just suspicious a little bit, too, of, all right, Lord, what are, what are they taking that just isn't going to be helpful to them for me? You know, I'm, I'm ready for that conversation, right? It's going to come eventually. I don't know what age they're going to be when they tell me what a disappointment I was to them. But I'm, I'm ready for that moment when you're going to get the true feedback for what it was like to grow up in our family and what of the Lord in the gospel came through well what got misrepresented. Um, and, and I would just encourage you as parents, don't be afraid of that conversation. It's going to come. It has to come. Um, when, uh, yeah, they say, okay, here's the part I've learned about the Lord from his word that I just didn't come through at home um, and that I had to learn elsewhere. Um, and that, again, should humble us, but also help us see that, you know, we need help. We need others that are going to have to pour into our kids. We also need the Lord through the many means that he uses to shape them and guide them because none of us have, our, we're not God. And so we don't have all that God has to give to them. But yeah, good question. Right, right now. So right now, so when we're all at the dinner table, We'll, all, we'll always read scripture at the end of that, time, that meal. And usually whoever's finished first gets to read. Um, so right now we're in 1 Timothy. Uh, we were in Ephesians before that. We're in 1 Timothy. So we'll just read a paragraph. Sometimes we'll get further than another, but usually like in a, a, an epistle like that, we'll take like a paragraph and read it. If it's an Old Testament narrative, we may read more. And then we'll just talk about it. And so that'll usually be three or four times a week. Um, there'll be Sundays after services where we'll have conversations about the sermon, conversations about hymns that were sung, um, times after youth meetings and things that were taught that we'll talk about some of that. And so when it comes to time in the Word, that's probably the most consistent. And then we're, then they all have one-year Bibles that, um, that we encourage them to read through the whole Bible in a year. And so that'll, that's set up the way it's an ESV one-year Bible, but. Um, those are a few things. But, yeah. well, let me pray for us.